If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drimple. So excited today, so excited today, so excited today. You know I love me some girl power on this here podcast. You know I do. We have seen we have seen some evidence of that over the <laughs> last just, year. Do I, do I not hide it well? Okay. We have an extraordinary woman on this podcast today who I am so delighted has agreed, deigned to be on our little podcast. Iona Craig, award-winning investigative journalist who is with us to discuss the Houthis. But that's not enough. We need to know more about Iona Craig. So just so you know, she has been the Yemeni correspondent for The Times. She was the recipient of the Martha Gellhorn Prize for reporting on, do you remember the US drone strikes in Yemen that yeah. included that bombing of a wedding convoy? And what a great woman Martha Gellhorn was. What a lovely prize to win. Well, I mean, you know, from hand to extraordinary hand, she survived an assassination attempt in 2013, which we'll talk about a bit more, which was just outside Sana'a. Not many people could say that. No, no. And uh, was the last accredited Western journalist living in Yemen when she left in 2014, but not forever. Because just when the little chat while your internet was having a hiccup, we were chatting, how many times have you been back to Yemen since 2014? I've actually lost count, to be honest with you, but I've probably spent at least the equivalent to another year and a half in Yemen since having not actually lived there. Which we should say is not an easy thing to do at the moment. Um, no, although I did get stuck there on a couple of occasions. I got stuck there during COVID when the airports were shut down. In 2015, when I first went back, I had to go back by boat. And I did the crossing between the Babel Mendab into southern Yemen three times by boat because of the control of the airspace uh, being in the hands of Saudi Arabia and then preventing journalists from getting in. So yeah, you had to be pretty determined to get back. But once I did I had a bit of a reputation for turning up at friends' houses, Yemeni friends' houses, saying, I'll be here for two or three days or a week and still being there a month or two months later. <laughs> and that happened repeatedly in 2015. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you this? In many people's minds, when they think of Yemen, what is conjured up is this sort of dust bowl, almost a landscape from a Star Wars movie, which is rubble, dust, sand, yellowness, poverty, starvation going back almost, you know, sort of, I don't know, a thousand years. And there's extraordinary primeval tower houses on the top of rocks, reaching up with those wonderful designs. What, what is Yemen to you? And what, what, what does the world need to understand about Yemen? Oh, I get very nostalgic when I think of Yemen. And whenever I'm here, I want to be there. Um, but yes, in the most densely populated part of the country, in the highlands, in the west of the country, it couldn't be further removed from that sort of image. 
You've got the tower houses that you mentioned, William, on the top of mountains. I lived in one of those tower houses for four years in the middle of the old city of Sanaa, which was five stories high. I had this amazing view to the edges of Sanaa up into the mountains. But actually, the, the highlands of Yemen, the western part of Yemen, which is the most densely populated area, it's beautiful and green when the rains come sort of two or three times a year. And there's terracing sort of, as you'd imagine, maybe around the Mediterranean or something like that. Terraced farming. It's very green. There are no permanent rivers, but you do with this heavy rainfall then get rivers forming uh, in the rainy season. And the east of the country is desert and it's less densely populated. So you have this huge contrast when you can drive from the west to the east through the kind of mountainous areas and highland mountains. I mean, Sanaa is one of the highest capital cities in the world. So you actually have an almost perfect climate there where it never really gets above 30 degrees. It can freeze at night in the winter, but rarely. Normally during the day, it doesn't really get below 16 degrees in the winter. So you've got this sort of lovely climate up in the mountains there. And it's extremely beautiful. Yeah. And so in those old tower houses, you have the traditional architecture, which are these beautiful half moon windows which are stained glass and so you wake up in your ancient tower house in the morning with white walls with geometric patterns on them with this filtering of light from the stained glass coming through your window and it is very idyllic in that respect and you know I had a, a mafraj on the top floor which is like a sitting room a traditional sitting room where you could I could just see for miles and you'd sit there and have your gat juice gat being the kind of alternative to really to alcohol in Yemen, which is which is not consumed, but this is the kind of local drug, really. It's a plant. It's a bit like drinking too many espressos or, or Red Bull. It gives you that kind of high, but it's very much a show, social thing in, in northern Yemen in particular. And that's where you gather in an afternoon to sit and chew gap. Chills you out rather than revs you up, though, doesn't it? It's sort of... Not for me, actually. It, it, you go through a, you go through a cycle. So for me, it actually made me really anxious. So for me, because I'm very caffeine sensitive, it actually made me quite jittery. And I, if you, depending a bit like wine, depending on where you get your gap from, it can sometimes literally stop me from sleeping for two nights. Really? But but yeah, in a gap chew, you do go through a cycle. So you don't want to turn up to a gap chew late because everybody will be at a different part in the cycle to where you're at. It's a bit like drinking. Are you saying gap chew as in chewing? Ca yeah, you that chew, is a thing called a gat chew. Yeah. You chew the herb and it has this effect. You don't smoke it or inhale it or snort it. You, you chew it. It's not a particularly present experience, I have to say. It's like taking the leaves off a plant, sticking in the in your mouth. You don't swallow them. You chew them and you get this great big sort of bulging cheek. It's like pawn, like beetle, beetle leaf in India. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. spent a little time in the Yemeni community in South Shields in uh, Tynan Weir near New Newcastle. And uh, they are the oldest, along with the Yemeni community of Cardiff, they're the oldest Muslim community in the country. And in order to spend time with them, I had to go and chew gat too <laughs> in, their, in their little mosque. Which is highly illegal, by the way, in the UK now. It's now illegal to chew gat in the UK. That's very tragic. It is completely illegal and we are, no, thank you, no way are we <laughs> suggesting that anyone should be doing this, okay? So let's just, let's just move along. <laughs> Nothing to see here. This was a long time ago, I should say. <laughs> yeah, no, a long, long time ago. And he won't do it again because he'll be in trouble. Just on the other, you know, sort of perhaps misconception about Yemen. I mean, there there is this idea that because when we hear about Yemen in the news and what we have for the last 15, 20 years, it's been in relation to either, you know, attacks from the sky 
or more latterly, the Houthis in the sea, but also starvation and terrible famine. This, though, was, and anyone who's listened to our Ottoman Empire series will know this, was once one of the richest places in the world. It was a great coffee exporter. You know, the city of Mocha was built on the on the fortunes of coffee. One, I think one of our all-time most wonderful episodes, the, that coffee episode where we had Jamal Kafadar giving us the history of coffee. And we it was all about Mocha and, uh, and Yemeni goat herds spotting their goats frisking around after eating coffee beans. But, I mean, do the people of Yemen claim that as, as heritage? Do they think of themselves as that from that linear, I mean, the people, isn't that a terrible way to say? It? But I mean, if you have a characterization of, of a people, how would you describe them? That's actually really hard in Yemen because Yemen, as we now call it, was only one state from 1990. So, really, actually, culturally, inside Yemen, uh, many people in the south do not see themselves as culturally aligned to people from the north. And, and even sort of the national dish of the north, some people in the south have never eaten it. So, yeah, I think it's kind of trying to see it as one monolithic like that. But, yeah, I mean, if you go back to obviously the times of the incense trail, gold, frankincense and myrrh, you know, at least one of the three wise men, it's claimed to have come from Yemen. And the frankincense and myrrh certainly would have come probably from Yemen because that's what it became so famous for and traded on. You know, in, in modern times, though, unfortunately, Yemen then became sort of famous for being the poorest country in the Middle East because it didn't have the oil of its neighbours. And that's really where I suppose it's it kind of over time has has really been depleted from this, this very sort of famous uh, country in terms of trade routes and trading. Yeah, Aden was one of the richest ports in the in the whole of the history of British imperialism and trade. East India Company used Aden as a major base. Yeah, I mean, that's why they took Aden really as a British protectorate was because of where it was conveniently located. Halfway between Bombay and Suez. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think in, in terms of identifying with that heritage, unfortunately, in some respects, it's become a little bit politicized through the conflict because of this, in some in some circles, this kind of debate over who has the right to rule in the terms of genealogy and, and ancient family history in Yemen. And some people are trying to kind of claim that history all the way back to the kind of, you know, 3000 years ago, of, of a family lineage, i.e. way beyond the sort of Prophet Muhammad kind of lineage. And so it becomes a bit politicised in, in that respect. Now, we hear about Yemen and the Houthis now an awful lot and, and the Red Sea. And we should, first of all, just describe why this stretch of sea is so very, very important. This is a, a stretch of water that divides Africa and Asia. It is the most important shortcut for all trade in the world for ships to reach the Mediterranean without having to go around the Horn of Africa, which is a dangerous and long voyage to take. Stretching from the Gate of Tears in the south between Eritrea and Yemen up to Israel and Egypt, the Suez Canal. And since November 2023, the Houthis in Yemen have attacked cargo ships in the area. They've launched missiles and they've used armed drones to strike at shipping as well in the area. This is going to be unusual because normally we start at the beginning and we come through to the modern era, but can we just deal with what people will find familiar and then find the roots of, of what goes on? Who are the Houthis and where did they come from and have they always been there? The Houthis, as we now know them, really grew out of an organisation or a movement called the Believing Youth 
in northern Yemen, which was a Zaidi revivalist movement. Who are the Zaidis? Exactly. Well, the Zaidis are a Shia Islamic group that is really kind of almost unique to Yemen. And in fact, religiously, they have more in common with Sunnis in Yemen than they do with the 12 Shias of Iran. But yeah, Zaydis are pretty much unique to Yemen, Shia branch of Islam. And the Believing Youth Group was a Zaydi revivalist religious group that was formed in the 1990s in really in a response to the spread of Saudi Salafism uh, into Yemen that began in the late 1970s, early 1980s. So we had last week Kim Gattas telling us about the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia and how after 1979, both of these Islamic countries were pushing their different brands of Islam around the world. How far is it true? Because in every news report, they often just say Iran-backed Houthis. Is that a description that you recognize? They are certainly now backed by Iran. They wouldn't be where they are today if it wasn't for Iran, but it also became slightly self-fulfilling. So, you know, one of the reasons Saudi Arabia intervened in Yemen back in 2015, they said, was because of the Iranian support for the Houthis. At that point, it was minimal. It was political, maybe some small arms. But really, as a result, ironically, of the Saudis getting involved in Yemen since 2015. The Iranians actually did become involved. Exactly. So then you had training and weapons provided to the Houthis and not just small arms. You've got now all of these anti-ship ballistic missiles, anti-ship cruise missiles that you've been seeing fired at vessels in the Red Sea have all come from Iran. And these are Iranian armaments? Yes. I mean, what happens to a lot of them is they get shipped in in parts and then the Houthis have been trained by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps to rebuild them and put them back together again once they've been smuggled in in different parts. And what is the attitude to the Houthis, you know, from the the general public, you know, sort of mates of yours who you would, you know, go and sleep on their floor for a couple of days stroke four months? I mean, what, you know, what do they make of this presence and the armaments that are, are, are building up in their country? Well, actually, that's changed a lot because of what's happened since October 7th. So the Houthis, since they took the capital sonar in 2014, they, they've kind of always ruled with an iron fist. And there is zero tolerance for any opposition, for whether that be in the form of criticism from journalists or civil society or political activists. And, you know, in before the war, they infiltrated the education system, the religious teachings and absolutely everything. But since October 7th, their reason for attacking ships in the Red Sea has been to support the Palestinian cause to challenge Israel and their war on Gaza and to disrupt shipments initially to Israel. Should we interpret that as orders given to them by Iran or is it a genuine popular Arab move against Israel? It's genuine and popular. I mean, the the Palestinian cause was always heavily supported in, in Yemen, had been historically for a long, long time. And it had also been part of the kind of Houthi ideology, if you like. And their even their slogan, which they adopted way back in 2003, is this very anti-Israel, anti-Semitic even, anti-Israel, anti-American slogan, which is death to America, death to Israel, damn the Jews, victory to Islam. And that was adopted by the Houthis in 2003, really as a reaction to the American invasion of Iraq. But yeah, just going back to the popularity of the Houthis, really now, this has been massively popular for them. And that's even in the anti-Houthi side of the civil war in Yemen. I've now, you know, most of the friends I speak to in, in southern Yemen, which is not under Houthi control, 
are supporting what the Houthis are doing, despite them being against everything else the Houthis have done over the last 10 years, because they're, they're seen as the only actors in the whole region, arguably the world, of doing anything to support the Palestinians or to stand up to Israel's war in Gaza. Well, we've already talked about, you know, a, a divide between Houthi-controlled and not Houthi-controlled Yemen. Can we go back to 1990, though, when Yemen became what we would recognise as a modern state? So this is under Ali Abdullah Saleh, first president of modern Yemen. Tell me a little more about him. I've seen pictures of him. He looks, I mean, he looks like an accountant, sort of dark moustache, you know, sort of steel-rimmed glasses. He looks like a bureaucrat. Who who was he? What's his origin story? And not Fernando from accounts, your old friend from... <laughs> no, not Fernando from accounts, yes. Um, there's a, a long-running gag on this where I comment on the hotness. <laughs> well, I don't, but people think I do. People say I comment on the hotness of they? certain historical figures. But anyway, yes, t- tell us about Ali Abdullah Saleh. Well, he was a lot more intimidating and scary than any accountant that I've ever met. I, I did meet Saleh. I interviewed him. I was the first one to interview him after he stepped down from power after 33 years in power, sort of more than 10 years ago now. We should describe him. Thick, dark moustache, frowning eyebrows, often seen wearing tinted glasses. Yes, not not terribly tall, but had a massive presence. He wore those tinted glasses a lot later on because he suffered a huge amount of physical damage. He was nearly, very nearly killed during the Arab Spring uprising in, in 2011, when the mosque he was attending for Friday prayers was bombed. And it's a miracle that he survived that, but it did a lot of damage to him physically. Badly burnt. Very badly burnt. I mean, our, when I went to interview him, his aide showed me a picture of him, of what he looked like immediately after the, the bombing. And he had a gash the whole way across his left lung. I mean, he looked like he was dead. And I remember when he did eventually die in 2017 and I saw pictures of him dead, I said, I've seen Saleh looking more dead than he is now. I'm not sure that he is actually. Because, you know, ironically, the Saudis shipped him off to Saudi Arabia and spent many months literally putting him back together again. But yeah, he had a lot of damage, damage to his hearing, to his face and everything else. But yeah, he was a massive presence in Yemen for 33 years. Nobody thought he would last more than a year in the job when he got the presidency, because his two predecessors had been assassinated, although Saleh certainly supported one of those assassinations, if not being directly involved in it. But he went on to rule Yemen through this kind of system of patronage networks, of playing tribes and groups off against each other. He was a very Machiavellian character. I just want to go back. He does something in 1990, which is, you know, the the unification, as you say, with patronage and everything. But he creates an entity that he calls Yemen. So I mean, if you're trying to unify, you're going to have to bring together, you know, Saleh's uh, north and also the Marxist-Leninist underpinned south. What did he want for the economy? What was he thinking of, of building this new country on? And how do you build a country in 1990? Well, yeah, the, the socialist side came from the south, really. It, after the Brits had left, it became the only sort of socialist slash communist state in the region. And that's what southern Yemen was until 1990. And had a very strong anti-imperial identity, Absolutely. didn't it? It, was, it? it saw itself as, as as having thrown the British out. Absolutely. And, and, they, and they did, really. There's always the joke about it. It took the British too long to leave because they announced when they were leaving and then it took them, you know, a couple of years to pack. And in that time, they were having a lot of pot shots taken at them by the locals. But yes, yeah, so in 1990, in no small part because of the collapse of the USSR, a lot of the support that was coming for southern Yemen and for the socialists there was lost. 
And so, yeah, it happened very quickly, unification in 1990. And it was quite an, an important year that really overall politically in in Yemen, because it started with unification on the 22nd of May in 1990. Then you had sort of political um, moves being made in, in the north. Then you had the formation of the the Zaidi political party, Al-Haq, which was founded in opposition to the Islamist party, uh, the Islam party, which is kind of Yemen's version of the Muslim Brotherhood. That also happened in 1990. And then they vote with Saddam after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990, and the Western world punishes them by cutting off aid. Yeah, this was sort of Saleh's biggest mistake and worst move that he could have made, really. And he he paid a price for it and, and learned from it. So, yes, during the, the UN Security Council resolution that happened at the end of 1990, which was basically given authorization for what then was the Gulf War the next year, which gave an ultimatum to Saddam Hussein to withdraw from Kuwait. Ali Abdullah Saleh, Yemen, was the only country that didn't support that resolution. Other than Cuba. <laughs> Cuba's the last other. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as a result of that, yes, the IMF, the World Bank, all withdrew funding. They lost $70 million in funding from the US. And Saleh was isolated and financially almost ruined, really, because you've got to remember after unification at the beginning of the year, they were taking on the economy of the South, which was already in trouble because of the collapse of the USSR. So it was a real moment for Saleh when, yeah, he lost a large, significant amount of the income for the country for him to be able to run this new country almost overnight as a result of that. So the money's drying up. Does this not also trigger a really autocratic streak in him? Yeah, I mean, some might say that he was like that already. But um, really what happened also during that time was all of the Yemenis that were working around the Gulf in the Gulf Corporation Council, the GCC countries, there was nearly a million of them. They were all kicked out of both Saudi Arabia, the UAE, across the Gulf were kicked out and sent back home to Yemen. And the remittances that they had been sending home was almost like a development fund for Yemen. It had been, you know, it was a grassroots sort of funding that all of these families, whether it be in rural communities or in the cities, were receiving income from abroad, suddenly stopped. What happened then for Saleh really during that period of 1990, although oil had previously been discovered in Yemen in 1984, it didn't really take off until then in 1991 when it was discovered in the Masilla Basin, which was in old southern Yemen, in the old PDRY. People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, which the socialist state was. And that really then centralized financially the economy in Yemen because these remittances had been lost, where it was going in at very much at grassroots levels across communities. The money then was kind of coming in centrally. And that was how Saleh was able to finance his patronage network, how he was able to rule. I mean, the UN estimated. Saleh stole, embezzled, squirreled away somewhere between $32 billion and up to $60 billion worth of money for himself and his family and everything else. But the, most of that came through oil contracts. Now, Yemen didn't have the amount of oil that was obviously in Saudi Arabia or in, in other parts of the Gulf, but it was enough to be able to fund Saleh's rule, really, and his sort of appetite for, for stealing money from the state, really. It's a good place to take a break here. So you've got Saleh presiding over a whole of a unified Yemen, cementing his autocratic leadership. 
basically his hand in most people's pocket. Join us after the break when the Houthis will enter the story. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So just before the break, our wonderful guest star today on today's Empire podcast, Ina Craig, was telling us about how Yemen becomes a consolidated country under the, I was going to say under the wing, but more under the boot of this man called Saleh. And then we have entering the fray, the Houthis. And I want, I want to talk about Hussein al-Houthi, who was born in Yemen in the 1950s. So he was born at a time when the British were still in charge. They hadn't left yet. Tell us about him. What was he like? Where did he come from? What's his origin story? So Hussein was a Zaidi sort of scholar and orator. He was very well respected. A cleric? Yes, he was, but he was also slightly ambiguous in his, in his teachings in the sense that when he founded the Believing Youth with others from the Zaidi movement, there was a, a lot of uh, disagreement, really, between his version of Zaidism and what was seen as the, the true root of Zaidism. I, a lot of other clerics and scholars thought what he was teaching wasn't correct and was a diversion from true Zaidism. And they were critical of him 
and his writings, and they thought that he kind of undermined sort of Zaydi jurisprudence and other elements of Zaydiism and didn't necessarily always agree with him. And I know, just just for clarity, if you were a an Ayatollah in Qom, what would you think of Hussein al Houthi's theology and the Zaydis in general? I mean, are they compatible with with mainstream Shiism, or would they be regarded as basically rather heretical? Well, actually, the Zaydis have far more in common with the Sunnis and particularly the Shafi'i Sunnis of Yemen than they do with the Twelver Shias. For sure. I think the thing was with Hussein, which he was never clear about really, is one of the aspects of Zaydism is about um, the right to rule and the genealogy of whoever is in power. And in some parts of Zaydism, and, and this is where the division happened in northern Yemen in particular after the Imamate, there were those that still believed that those who could trace their lineage back to the Prophet Muhammad had the birthright to rule, if you like. Whereas there was then another school of Zaydism that believed that actually now there was a republic and everything else, that it should be done through political parties. And so now, you know, in present day in Yemen, the Houthis very much favour and give positions of power to and their patronage network is set around not just the Hashemites. And when we say Hashemites in Yemen, it's not really to be confused with the with the Hashemites of Jordan, although they still trace their lines back to the great grandfather of the Prophet Muhammad um, and Beni Hashem. We really mean uh, Sada in, in Yemen when we say Hashemites or the singular of that, which is Sayyid. So Abdul Malik al-Houthi, the now leader of the Houthis is called Sayyid Abdul Malik. And that means that they can trace their lineage directly back to the Prophet Muhammad's family and not the, the Hashemite, which is broader and goes to all the cousins and is a, a much broader group. The Sadar is a, is a direct line to the family of the Prophet Muhammad from his grandchildren. So the Houthis now very much use the Zaydi school of thought that believes in that divine right, if you like, to rule. And so their patronage network sort of taking over from where Saleh left off, but they favor those who are Sayyids or Sadah, as well as Hashemites. And they are given priority, they're given wages when others aren't, they're given positions of power in ministries, in the military and everything else because of that. But going back to Hussein, he was never really clear about what he thought on that and never expressed it clearly whether he believed that it should continue through the lineage of the Prophet Muhammad or go through political means, which is the route he went down initially. He was a parliamentarian, he was a member of parliament in Yemen until 1997. And that was the route that he chose. But he was never clear in his teachings and his writings about his thoughts on that. You know, just uh, you've talked about sort of the family lineage, just on the political family uh, allegiances that he might have had or formative. I mean, I read somewhere, I don't know whether it's true or not, that he spent some very formative years in Iran. And, you know, according to one disciple, he sort of was hanging about in the orbit of the founder of Hezbollah at that time as well, and that they were sort of brothers in ideology. Does that, I mean, does that ring true to you, or is that just somebody wanting to back project? No, I think what they had in common more than the the Shia Islam really was the wanting to change the status quo in the region. And for somebody like Hussein, it was really a feeling of anti-American sentiment because of the war in Iraq in, in 2000, the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, which, of course, because Saleh had learned from 1990, having 
stood on the side of Saddam Hussein, he realised not to do that post 9-11. No, because the money dried up. When he did that, exactly. the money completely dried up. Yeah. He was not just in, in, in supported the invasion of Iraq. He then gave a huge amount of support and welcome support for counterterrorism in Yemen from the Americans. And the Houthis really, since 2003, when they took up this, this slogan of, of anti-Americanism, that's what they shared really with Iran or Hezbollah, with this wanting to change the status quo in the region, this anti-American sentiment that also included anti-Israeli and anti-Semitic really. But that's what they had in common more so than the religious aspect. Ona, I've read somewhere that the Houthis actually trained in Lebanon with Hezbollah. Is that likely? Uh, yes, I think, particularly as time's gone on, uh, what began really with the believing youth and in the early days of the Houthi movement were summer camps. It, it's unclear really whether that included military training that early on. Certainly there was political um, connections and movement of Houthis and, and, and Zaydis going from Sada both to Iran and to Lebanon long before the civil war that, that we're now experiencing in Yemen t- since 2014. Um, but it became an increasingly militarized sort of movement, really, particularly once 2004 happened, which was the first of the wars between the Houthis and the government of Ali Abdullah Saleh. And Hussein al-Houthi was killed at the beginning of that first war in, in 2004. Let's not throw that away cheaply because, you know, he is properly getting up Saleh's nose, isn't he? Because he's decrying that there's corruption, which there is. He's saying that he's a puppet, which arguably he is, because he knows what happened the last time when he opposed you know, the, the, the American rule. So how, how it, there's a bounty put on his head? I mean, Saleh takes him very seriously in this voice of, you know, radical pushback from him. He he won't have it. What happens then? The security forces were were wanting to arrest him. The the state security forces under Ali Abdullah Saleh, and he was shot dead reportedly at a checkpoint by state security forces. But most importantly, his body was then taken by the state and was held onto it until Ali Abdullah Saleh was out of power, till his successor, President Hadi, was put in place. And Hussein's body wasn't given back to the Houthis then until 2012. So he died in 2004. He was killed in 2004. And then they had this huge funeral for him in 2013, which was, you know, given the importance that he became in his death, the martyr that he became in his death and the importance to the Houthi movement in that time, it was a massive gathering in Sada, and it was really the first time where you saw that the Houthis had created, through this period of six wars with the state, really their kind of own statelet in Sada, because they had their own security forces in their own uniform protecting this funeral in 2013. You had a representative there from the Iranian embassy. You had other religious figures there from the region, including Syria. And it was really a moment when you suddenly realised that the Houthis had effectively got control and governance over the whole of Sada and also governorates to either side of Sada where the war and conflict had spread to during those six wars, that they had taken a little bit more territory each time, if you like. So, yeah, Hussein became this, you know, hugely important religious sort of figure, really, to the Houthis. And, and so... When he was buried in 2013, it was a massive event. It was a huge event for the Houthis, despite the fact that he he died sort of nine years pr- prior to that. But then, with all of that fervor sort of kicking around in the air, and you know this this mass mourning, I suppose no 
surprise then that 2014, and this is all bubbling and boiling, that the Houthi coup happens. Can you can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so really, the, the, as much as Saudi Arabia at the time probably would have liked to have blamed Iran, the reason the Houthis were able to do that was because of Ali Abdullah Saleh. Having Saleh fought all these wars with the Houthis, he was looking to claw back power, having been kicked out of office in 2012. And he knew the kind of Trojan horse for him, really, was going to be the Houthis. So he did a deal with the Houthis, and Saleh had maintained his loyalists within the army. So when when I was living in Sana'a in 2014, when the coup happened, it was kind of extraordinary, really, because there was some initial fighting for about four days at a major military camp on the outskirts of the city that was the home of Ali Mohsen al-Akmar, who was Saleh's greatest foe. He'd led the wars for Saleh against the Houthis, but he was also the most powerful man in the military. And and Saleh had long hated him. He defected during 2011, during the Arab Spring, and his guys in the military had turned on, on Saleh's forces. So Saleh had a long grudge against Ali Mohsen. So the fighting started around his camp. But when it came to taking the Ministry of Defence, the Parliament, I was living right by the Parliament at that time. And I remember walking out the door the day the Houthis took control and not a single shot was fired. The security forces standing outside the Parliament welcomed the Houthis walking up to them, literally shook their hands and they came and joined them. And just parted ways and opened the gates. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And and the same thing happened at the Ministry of Defence. I then literally walked down the road. I was going to meet a photographer friend of mine and somebody messaged me and said they'd taken the Ministry of Defence. And I said, I'm 100 metres from the Ministry of Defence. There's not a shot been fired. And the same thing happened. And at that time, the, the Houthis had, you know, been riding on a really a wave of opportunism as they've repeatedly done now but there have been massive issues again over corruption with the new president Hadi there have been a reduction in the subsidy on fuel so people have gone and protested because the cost of fuel had had risen substantially and so the Houthis took this as an opportunity they saw it as a new revolution and they took control of the capital in September 2014, when the entire international community and the UN Special Envoy were sitting in the presidential palace waiting to sign a deal with the Houthis to say that we will join a unity government. And whilst they're all locked up in the palace, had their phones taken off them so they couldn't communicate with the rest of the world, but for security reasons, the Houthis were sweeping through the city and taking control of all of the ministries. And it, it was quite an extraordinary thing to watch because it was a coup that even the international community was denying was a coup at the time. I mean, I'm just, can I just say, I mean, I, I'm just slightly astonished by the fact that you're strolling around while the coup is happening. I mean, what was it like <laughs> yeah. to be a, a woman? You know, you're, you're, yeah. you're a slight Western woman and you're sort of muddling along. The Houthis have come in. Then, you know, there's a huge seismic change in government. How did you operate in Yemen? I mean, did you have to be veiled? Did you have to be covered? Because I mentioned at the top of this program, 2013 was when there was an assassination attempt on you. So, I mean, what, what's gone on here, Iona? Well, certainly when I first turned up in Yemen in 2010 and all the way through to probably 2013, really, I never covered my head. I had shorter hair than I even do now then, and I was often mistaken as a man because I would always wear sort of long sleeve clothes and a, and a top that covered my bum and went down to my knees, sort of like a dress with trousers on underneath. And I did often get mistaken for a boy a lot of the time. I used to have arguments going on in Arabic in the public bus behind me about, is she a girl, is she a boy? <laughs> but really then, for, certainly foreign women could move about freely without having to be covered. That then changed during the period after the Arab Spring, before the revolution happened, when there was 
what they call the National Dialogue Conference, which was a transitional phase in Yemen. Are we talking about 2012? What what year are we talking about when, when things changed? 12, and then 13, really, because during this kind of period when you knew there was going to be a war, everybody who spent time in Yemen knew there was a war coming and that it, Ali Abdullah Saleh was probably likely behind it. You had a string of assassinations, political assassinations going on. Car bombs... Yes, drive-by shootings. Car bombs were normally the kind of Al-Qaeda thing, suicide bombings, but you then that, that, that Al-Qaeda would often claim you'd have car bombs, suicide bombings, drive-by shootings. You had regular kidnappings then of foreign nationals. So I had six friends kidnapped in that period. And that was actually when I started wearing a bayah and a hijab. Just obviously I look like a white foreigner, but if somebody's driving past, then I'm not an immediate sort of target. But yeah, I had several friends kidnapped during that period. And returned? or kid- What happened to them when they were kidnapped? I mean, I'm going to come to your story because I, I don't want you skipping over that. But what happened to your friends once they were kidnapped? Who, who had taken them? What did they want? Well, this was the thing. A lot of them were, were taken by tribesmen but sold on to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was then in a kind of financial need and realised it was profitable business to be getting into the kidnapping business, if you like. And all of them were released bar one, who was uh, an American British national, Luke Summers, who was a journalist, also a photojournalist. And he was killed in a failed rescue attempt by the Navy SEALs, um, along with a South South African who was also being held with him. So, yeah, all, all of them were released, except for him, unfortunately, at the end of 2014, he was killed in a, in a failed rescue attempt. But yeah, so 2013, there were there were a lot of political assassinations going on. A lot of them happened to be the Houthis who were the more moderate Houthis, the political-minded Houthis, the ones who maybe a year down the road wouldn't necessarily have supported a takeover of Sana'a and this kind of soft coup, if you like, that would have been against that. And many of them were killed in, in shootings during 2013 and in the, in the run-up to the period when the Houthis started taking territory. So a lot of the, the moderates amongst the Houthis were removed from the picture entirely purely by being killed. What happened to you? Can it, I mean, can you bear to talk about that day? I just want to know, can you, I mean, don't, if don't, if it's awful. Oh, oh no, it's not awful at all. <laughs> so so I mean, what, what happened? So you, you, it, it's morning time, you get into a taxi. What, I mean, just talk us through what happened. So I just interviewed Ali Abdullah Saleh two days before, and I hadn't filed my story for the the piece for the Times yet because Saleh was going out to do his first political rally to his supporters since he'd been removed from office in, in, in 2011. So he hadn't done a public speaking or rally or anything like that since the Arab Spring. So I thought that was good context for the story. So I went to the political rally. He did his speech. And I left. And when I left, of course, there were, there were you know, were huge amounts of people leaving. I flagged down a cab, got in the taxi. And as we were driving through this sunken road that kind of goes around the outside of, of Sana's old city, you know, a couple of miles from, from where I was living at the time, we went past the Ministry of Defence. And as we did so, a vehicle came out of the ramp outside the Ministry of Defence and blocked the road in front of us. How terrifying. And then as it blocked our route, uh, somebody from over my right shoulder, I was sitting on the back seat, opened fire through the window. And obviously, you know, glass went flying and bullets went out at the other side. Thankfully, the taxi driver who didn't know me from Adam, I threw myself in the footwell, played dead. And he turned around, saw that I was okay, pulled around this car that was blocking our road and just took off down the road. 
I then got him back to my house later in the day to to give him some cash to pay for the damage that the bullets had done to his car. And um, I then explained that I was a journalist, at which point he sort of put his head in his hand and said, what the hell were you doing getting in my car? And I <laughs> promised him I would never get in his car again. And I gave him some cash for it, for all the broken glass. But I mean, he felt the bullets go through the hair on the back of his neck, you know. Oh, my so, God. We were both, you know, kind of relieved and, and laughing at the aspect that we were both sort of still alive and had survived that experience. And in those days, you had to get an exit visa. So I then spent the next couple of days trying to get a visa to be able to leave. And I did go home for a couple of weeks, but I came back again. But there was then a lot of uh, it, it kind of got a bit political because Saleh blamed Islam, which is the, the opposition party in Yemen. Islam blamed Saleh. Saleh's aide then called me up the next day and said, Saleh is worried about you. He wants to send you guards and a driver and all this kind of thing outside your house, at which point I knew it was time to go because I didn't want to get involved in any of that. So, yeah, I went I went home for a couple of weeks uh, and, and then came back again. For a couple of weeks? No stopping this woman. <laughs> By which time, you know, the political assassinations had moved on and they were murdering other people. I mean, I still don't know to this day whether it was an attempt – to actually take my life or just to try and frighten me, I, I have no idea. But who had most to gain from doing either of those things? Who, I mean, when people say to me, do you have any enemies? I said, well, there was a long list at that point. The only people I know it wasn't was Al-Qaeda because I actually contacted them and asked them and, and they, <laughs> the guy kind of laughed at me. Well, you just one 800 Al-Qaeda. Hello. Wow. I mean, just, just staying with you for one second. I mean, you know, you've, you've said this and I know you don't like talking about it because you've just sort of like, not because it's painful, but because you just don't like talking about yourself. But yeah. I want to talk about you a little bit. Well, why, why? After something like that happened, I would not be going back there. There Nor is I, no way. I would not. say, right, I have completely worn out my luck and I'm not going back. But you did. And again and again and again. Why? Absolute stubbornness. Pig-headedness. I, it's not about bravery. I, I thought, A, who am I running from? I didn't know who was responsible uh, and B, if it was an attempt to frighten me, which I thought it probably was, because in Yemen, you know, assassinations are pretty common and they're pretty good at killing people. They very rarely fail. And so I thought, if this is somebody's attempt to frighten me, I'm not going to be frightened by this. Absolutely no way am I going to be frightened by somebody doing this. So, so yes, it was absolute stubbornness. It was a, a, a sort of determination to sort of, I suppose, give my middle finger to whoever it was who was trying to frighten me and say, I'm not, I'm not frightened. So, so, yeah, it was complete stubbornness on my part. Cal, who's our brilliant producer on this program, who we love dearly and who had a chat with you before you came on, said, ask her about the swimming. Ask her about the swimming. <laughs> okay, so I don't know what this is about at all. <laughs> no, where's this going? But Iona, <laughs> tell us about the swimming. <laughs> oh, no, I shouldn't have mentioned that. So I, I, I was talking about to him about how the Yemen that I fell in love with when I moved to Yemen in 2010 and, and lived there for four years unfortunately doesn't really exist anymore because because of the war, because of the division in society, because the way both sides in the conflict, although there's more than two sides, are now ruled. So, you know, the Houthis now have very strict rules on what women can do. They're not allowed to travel without a male guardian, which was never the case before. The last time I was in Sonara, I wasn't even allowed to walk out the door with an abaya on. And just the kind of strict social norms that have now been imposed. And equally, in, in southern Yemen, you've had the rise of the kind of uh, Salafi militias that have been funded and used militarily in the war, that you've had kind of extremism growing on, on both sides, really. But when I first went to Aden in 2010, this is where the swimming thing comes in, 
I was able to put on a bikini and go to the beach, albeit on a beach where you had to pay to go because it belonged to a private hotel. It wasn't like a public beach, but I paid my money. I went in and I thought I'll go for a swim in a bikini. By 2015, 16, not a chance, no way. And so in 2020, when I got stuck in, in Aden because of COVID and they'd shut the airspace and they'd shut all the airports, shut the roads and everything else. And I got stuck for, for a couple of months longer than I anticipated being in Yemen at that point. And I'm right by the sea. There's barely any electricity because... The infrastructure is so problematic because of corruption and other issues. There's no fuel to run the generators off. So I was like, I want to go for a swim. It's 40 odd degrees. And, you know, I couldn't go for a swim unless I was wearing an abaya. So I said, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. So I got my Yemeni friend who's staying with me. I said, right, get the scissors out. So I had shoulder length hair at that point. He cut all my hair off in a rather sort of Edward Scissorhand haphazard sort of a way. I then borrowed his brother's football shorts. I got a bandage from my first aid kit and bound my chest, put on a T-shirt, <laughs> and off I went. And, <laughs> and said, right, we're going, for, going to the beach. And, and so we did. So, yes, I did my best impersonation of a, of a bloke or a boy or a man or whatever. <laughs> You are a bloody-minded bird. That's what you are. And and good, good, good. Brilliant. It was a nice swim, I hope, at the end of all that. <laughs> it was, yes. And I did it quite regularly, actually, after that. <laughs> so we've seen the Houthis now, Sue's control, Iona, and things are getting darker. There's more extremism. There's, there's violence. There's been a coup. What happens next? And, and tell me about Saudi Arabia's uh, entry into this in 2015. Well, what happens after the Houthis take control of the capital in, in September 2014 is they sign this agreement saying they will go no further, they'll withdraw their troops from Sana'a and, and kind of go back to Sada. Not only did they not do that, but the exact reverse happened. So they continue taking territory through the country. They continue pushing south and east. And then in early 2015, there was fighting in the capital itself. And President Hadi, who was Saleh's successor, was effectively put under house arrest, wasn't able to move. The government was disbanded and the Houthis took power by full force at that point. And just to remind us, Iona, what percentage of the population are Houthi or Zaidi? Well, Zaidis, uh, between 15 and 20%. So they're a small minority. Yes. But I think, you know, a lot of people would say now that not necessarily all Houthis are Zaidis and vice versa, all Zaidis are Houthis. Sure. But, but yeah, as 2015 then got going, you had the collapse of the government that the Houthis then took absolute control. President Hadi was under house arrest and then somehow managed to escape house arrest, reportedly dressed as a woman in an abaya with a niqab on. The reverse to you. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and got in a car and escaped to Aden in the south. But the Houthis followed him and to the point that actually they, because they'd taken over the systems of the state, they used the air force for the first time and airstrikes by the Houthi then controlled Yemeni air force were carried out in Aden against President Hadi and his supporters, at which point Hadi fled and he went to Saudi Arabia. And with that, the Saudi coalition was formed and literally overnight in, in March 2015, Saudi Arabia launched its bombing campaign in Yemen that began in March 2015, with the idea that it would last a couple of weeks, maybe a, a month or so, and was still going on until a ceasefire in, in 2022. And the UAE also became a crucial part of that coalition. And the UAE, 
their primary involvement, not only in the air wars, was on the ground as well. So they sent forces in and also funded and trained um, militias, including Sudanese and Yemeni Salafis and other groups in support of the old Southern separatist cause. Who are the foot soldiers in the Saudi anti-Houthi forces? It is actually regular regiments of, of the Saudi army or who's fighting the war now? No, the Saudi army isn't really involved in, in foot soldiers at all. So you've got multiple units and groups on the anti-Houthi side. They've actually fought each other. So the UAE has supported one side, the, the Southern separatists known as the, now the Southern Transitional Council, which they helped create and fund against the internationally recognized government, which also has ISLA, the political party, as part of. And the UAE is absolutely and adamantly opposed to ISLA. They, because they see them as the Muslim Brotherhood and this potential to be an existential threat to the UAE, they are deeply opposed to ISLA having any power. And so hence they supported the SDC, the Southern Transitional Council, into creation and have funded it and other fighters who are also not pro-Islam. So within the anti-Houthi faction, it's very fragmented and they have fought each other to the point the UAE even carried out airstrikes against some of the internationally recognized governments backed by Saudi Arabia side. And it's really weakened their ability, therefore, to fight the Houthis because of this internal fighting really on the anti-Houthi side. And the Houthis have obviously been able to take advantage of that. I mean, you've just got people being pounded amidst all of this sort of crossfire going on between different interest groups, which, not surprisingly, has led to a complete collapse in the healthcare system, famine, people not getting food. In 2019, the Global Food Index said that Yemen had the second highest score for hunger in the world. And 2022, which was a couple of years ago, a World Food Programme said 17 million people in Yemen are food insecure. What's going to happen next to a country that I know you love and that you would, you know, sort of long to be back in if it could be a little more like the place that the young boy girls swam in, you know? Yeah. I think this is a problem that none of the protagonists, you know, uh, in the war, whether it be Saudi Arabia, the UAE, or the Houthis, or the internationally recognized government, have Yemeni civilians as their priority at all. Um, they all have their own interests, uh, primary. I mean, the, the starvation aspect of it has been dire. A large part of that has been down to the Saudi-led coalition and the, the de facto blockade they impose. But also the Houthis have manipulated aid. They've besieged cities. They're still besieging, partly besieging the city of Tyres. They prevented food and water getting to civilian populations. So all parties are kind of guilty of this, really. And I think going forward now with the Houthis is really a question of how far they are willing to escalate in the Red Sea. And therefore, the reaction this is going to draw from the US and the UK. So the US has now designated the Houthis as a specially designated group. They had been previously designated as a foreign terrorist organization, which is slightly different. But being designated as a terrorist organization now will also have an impact on companies willing to ship food into Hodeida, which is under Houthi control, the main port for the most densely populated part of Yemen, and therefore will affect food prices. Food prices are also affected by shipping insurance, which of course is huge from anything going into to the Red Sea where Hodeida port is. So the consequences of international reaction to what the Houthis uh, are doing now in the Red Sea 
can still, again, have devastating con- consequences for the civilians in Yemen. Well, it's a, it's a really bleak assessment to leave things on, but we've been so charmed and delighted by having you here. Thank you so much, uh, Iona. I know you don't like talking about yourself, but I think people will find you know your own personal recollections of you know not getting shot. not getting shot in the head really quite mesmerizing um listen we should we should also say that it's kind of a grand crescendo to end our iran series out tragically with a bang quite literally well yes i know i know Uh, it may not be the cheeriest of endings but we hope you've enjoyed this series do stay tuned because we've got a a complete change of pace for our next mini series here on empire just gonna have to wait to find out what it is until well unless William tweets it. Unless you know somebody what he likes. lets the cat out of the bag, I can't think. Unless William just blasts it onto <laughs> X or Twitter or Instagram. Anyway, till then, though, it is goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Trumple.